Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear from a museum seeking to honor the lives of those who died in last week's mass shooting in Boulder. These objects are there for purpose, and that purpose is to provide comfort and healing and respect for a community. Plus, why tribal nations are leading the way when it comes to getting people vaccinated against COVID-19. Those stories and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. This past weekend, the state Republican Party selected its new leader. Christy Burton-Brown will be the first woman to lead the Colorado GOP since the 1970s. But she is taking the reins during a time of diminished power for the party here in Colorado. Jesse Paul covers politics for the Colorado Sun, and he joins us now with more. Jesse, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Who is Christy Burton-Brown? So Christy Burton-Brown, before Saturday, was the vice chair of the Colorado GOP. So she was like the second in command of the state party. And before that, you know, she really got her start in state politics by being a pretty fierce anti-abortion advocate. And so she worked on a number of ballot initiatives and she was frequently writing, you know, opinion pieces. And, you know, she's just kind of worked as a, as a constitutional attorney, been in political circles for a long time, worked her way up, never been um, an elected leader like some folks are when they enter one of these jobs. But she's, you know, certainly a pretty well-known quantity in Republican circles in Colorado. And she's fairly young in her early 30s. And she prevailed over a candidate who's far more well-known, I would say, in Colorado political circles, Scott Gessler. What does that tell us as far as, you know, how the party is feeling and viewing its future? As you mentioned, you know, Christie's only 33 years old, and she worked really hard during the 2020 campaign cycle to get out and support a lot of candidates. And, uh, you know, Republicans were knocking on doors while Democrats weren't. And I went to, I can remember at least one instance where she joined know, a couple of state house candidates and went door to door with them and was really trying to talk about the party. So she's trying to try to be this grassroots person. And she pretty handily beat the former Colorado Secretary of State, Scott Gessler, who is, I think, well known statewide because of his position as a statewide leader. But again, in Republican circles, I think, you know, they're probably equally as well known. Scott Gessler really pushed himself as as being kind of a person who could wholesale remake the Colorado GOP and, and kind of clean house from the ground up. And he you know, talked a lot about voter fraud and cast some doubt on the outcome of the 2020 presidential election and, and ran a big part on that in, in his GOP chair campaign, whereas Christy Burton-Brown really said, I want to bring the GOP into like the next phase of you know, politics. I want to recruit diverse candidates. I want to attract people from the unaffiliated pool of voters. I want to broaden our base. For whatever reason, I guess, you know, delegates, the, the state GOP activists had introduced her over Gessler to move the party forward. And Burton Brown, as we mentioned, will be leading a GOP that has less power in Colorado than it has had in more than eight decades. Has she talked about what her strategy will be? Her plan is to kind of tap into new networks that the Colorado GOP hasn't had in the past, make the Colorado GOP a 21st century 
fundraising and campaign machine. What I've heard, I guess, universally from all of the Republican candidates who are looking for this position and Republicans, you know, across the board is really that Republicans still feel like they have a winning message in Colorado. They just need to make sure that it's reaching the right people. We know the share of registered GOP voters in Colorado has been on the decline. Fewer than 28 percent of registered voters are Republicans here in the state. That's compared to 30 percent who are registered as Democrats and 40 percent who are unaffiliated. What does that say about the state of the party in Colorado? I think you can kind of, I think it says what it says, right? I mean, I think Republicans are kind of a diminishing share of the electorate, that Republicans have to find a way to attract unaffiliated voters if they want to win in Colorado moving forward. And over the past two election cycles, they failed pretty miserably, right, to to do so. I mean, they're, they are in minorities in the Senate and the House. They don't have the governor's office. There's only one statewide Republican elected official. And so the, the challenge for Republicans moving forward is not necessarily to grow the number of registered Republicans, but to find a way to really tap into that unaffiliated pool. Well, I think we have to talk about the role of former President Donald Trump because he has still presented himself as a major fixture in Republican politics nationally and here in Colorado, too. What does Burton Brown think about the role of Trump in the Colorado GOP moving forward? She was a pretty ardent Trump supporter once he came out on top in the 2016 primary and then throughout his presidency and then for his 2020 re-election campaign. And I, and I asked her, you know, specifically, do you think that Donald Trump is going to be continue to be a dominant force in Republican circles in Colorado? And she said, yes, you know, I think it's going to be something that is important. He's changed the party forever. We can't move on without him. Obviously, there's going to be different voices and and we have to make sure we're, we're getting everyone. But you know, effectively, yes, Trump will continue to be a very important driving force in Republican circles, at least in Colorado in the, in the coming years. You wrote that Burton Brown is one of those people who are, they've cast a bit of doubt on the outcome of the 2020 election. She's been careful when she talks about this issue. I mean, she said effectively that there was voter fraud across the country, but says that there isn't proof that there was enough voter fraud that would overturn the 2020 presidential election results. But at the same time, she's cast enough doubt on the outcome by saying things like, you know, we need to get to the bottom of this and we need to figure out what happened in Colorado. Obviously, you know, we've reported this and, and other media outlets have. There's been no proof of widespread fraud across the country or in Colorado that would have overturned the election results. Of the five candidates who are running for Colorado GOP chair, she was on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of talking about this. As I mentioned before, Scott Gessler, you know, that that was one of the primary things he talked about during his campaign to run the, the state party. Well, I just want to wrap up by mentioning that Burton Brown wasn't the only person elected and not the only woman elected to these leadership positions on Saturday. Yeah. So super interestingly, you know, this is the first time that the three officers for the state party will all be women. So Burton Brown was elected and then Priscilla Ron was elected as vice chair of the state party and Marilyn Harris was elected as a secretary. Um, and, and I think this is notable because Burton Brown is really pitching this kind of new era of diversity for Colorado Republicans. And this is off to a good start if they can now say, you know, look, for the party of the future, we have more women in leadership roles. Certainly, as I mentioned, you know, there's kind of a dearth of, of Republican Republicans in power in Colorado. But one of the most prominent figures now is Lauren Boebert, who's a woman. Christy Burton Brown is the state party chair. We'll see if, if Republicans can attract those unaffiliated voters who are looking for a more diverse slate of candidates, potentially. Jesse Paul is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to his reporting at KUNC.org. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
In the hours after 10 people were killed last week in a mass shooting in Boulder, memorials began appearing outside the King Super's grocery store, with flowers, cards, and artwork commemorating the victims. The Museum of Boulder is currently working with local officials, as well as organizations across the country, to archive this moment in history, while giving the community space to grieve. KUNC's Stacey Nick spoke with the museum's executive director, Lori Preston, to learn more about the Boulder Strong Project. During the past week, the Museum of Boulder has been in contact with two museums in communities where mass shootings occurred, Orlando, the site of the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016, and Las Vegas, where there was a mass shooting at a concert in 2017. Those had to be really hard conversations. Yes, they were hard in that we share the common denominator, and yet in many ways they made things a little bit easier. When you have a model like theirs that talks you through how to begin to approach a situation, a crisis like this, it was incredibly helpful. And I know in in particular, Pamela Schwartz of the Orange Historical Society in Orlando that dealt with Pulse, you know, really led the initiative. She contacted us within 24 hours and said, we want to talk you through what we did that was right and what we did that was wrong. If you don't mind me asking, what advice did they offer? One of the things I really appreciated um, is they led with this is a task that really is regarding an unthinkable act. And so because um, as a museum or any type of institution that's archiving something like this, be aware of the toll that it can take on working with materials that deal with grief take care of your own health and well-being as you move through it. But the second and and really probably even a higher priority is just to be mindful that in this moment, these objects, these pop-up memorials are there for purpose. And that purpose is to provide comfort and healing and respect for a community. Through these conversations that you've been having, you're, you're developing the Boulder Strong Project. What can you tell me about what this will look like? With regard to an exhibit, I don't know. Will it be, you know, will it be an exhibit or will it be that we archive and preserve these precious items and we have them behind the scenes? One of the stories that Orange Historical Society's executive director talked us through was how that some of those who had left items at memorial sites came to the museum like a couple years later to say, do you have, you know, I left this, do you have it? And that they've been able to say, you know what, we've organized this, we have it so documented that yes, we can find it. And yes, we have it and it's yours. And they've even given back to those, you know, who left donations or left um, something at the site. So it's not ours to determine at this moment. You know, it's definitely not an effort to like, oh, you know, someday this grandiose exhibit will pop up. We just need to listen to our community right now to find out what they need to heal, what they need to process. Where do they need to go five years from now on this date to absorb what happened. This seems like it's a it's a really delicate balancing act on a lot of levels. I think a big job of the Museum of Boulder is going to be not only items and artifacts, but 
we feel a, a, an important role in collecting oral histories. The museum in Orange guided us through that. You know, they said, look, we waited. And a few months later, we began to take the oral histories. We went in and we interviewed the families of, of victims. We interviewed those in the community who were on site and actively, you know, preventing things from happening. They actually shared that the FBI had contacted them as a museum and had them come to the site once they had completely done their work on the actual site at the Pulse nightclub. They actually had the museum people come first um, to the site to collect things. So those, you know, those are heavy and things that we actually hadn't even thought that that could be potentially tasked of us, yet we're one of you know, the oldest institutions in Boulder and the only institution really who has done this consistently for 76 years. You know, we've captured the not so pretty stories of Boulder, like the KKK. And we've also captured stories of, you know, how we preserved open space or how we invented certain things, you know, at ball aerospace. And that's the beauty and also the challenge of the Museum of Boulder. That was Stacy Nick speaking with Lori Preston, executive director of the Museum of Boulder. You can find out more about the museum's Boulder Strong project at our website, kunc.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. On Monday, Governor Jared Polis announced that anyone age 16 and older will be able to receive a COVID-19 vaccine with an appointment starting on Friday. We all have an interest in getting folks uh, successfully vaccinated. You do, first and foremost. I do in protecting ourselves, but we all do in ending the pandemic for everybody else as well. Each vaccine is a step closer to getting back to normal. The governor also urged people who have yet to be vaccinated to continue wearing a mask and to avoid social gatherings. Nearly one million Coloradans have been fully vaccinated, including 79 percent of those who are age 70 and older. Things are also going smoothly in other parts of the Mountain West. Tribal governments have been leaders in the nation's coronavirus response from the start. They imposed some of the earliest and strictest lockdowns to slow the spread, and now they're far ahead of the vaccination curve. For KUNC, Savannah Marr explains how they got there. On a Saturday morning, it's all hands on deck at Gallup Indian Medical Center. Custodians are directing traffic, dentists are checking in patients. This is your second dose, right? Yes. Okay, what did you guys get the first time? Pfizer. Pfizer? And inside a gym, nurses, pharmacists, and physical therapists are administering vaccines to hundreds of eager patients. Dr. Jonathan Irlu is the top infectious disease specialist with the Federal Indian Health Service, or IHS. Unlike the rest of the U.S. healthcare system, he says the IHS is centralized. And during the pandemic, he says that's been their superpower. We do primary care, we do hospital care, and we do public health. All three segments are wedded together. And so it's fairly easy to shift from primary care mode to public health mode and arrange something like this with the same staff. Through these mass vaccination events, the IHS's Navajo service area has already administered more than 200,000 vaccine doses to its patients including 62-year-old Melvin Foster. Yeah, I'm getting my second Pfizer shot. For Foster, getting vaccinated wasn't a difficult decision. 
10 of his relatives have died of COVID-19. It was hard for us. We had their services, graveside. I mean, this virus is something else that nobody shouldn't play with or laugh about. This is a serious issue. Okay, what's your honor? Right by your side. Nice to run. All the way down. Easy poke now. I will. I'll be gentle as a lamb. All right. One, two, and... As he waits out the 15-minute observation period, Foster feels a sense of relief. I've got grandchildren, so I've got to stay here as long as I can with them. Foster's willingness to take the vaccine tracks with the results of a recent survey by the Urban Indian Health Institute. Director Abigail Echohawk says about 1,400 Indigenous people responded, representing more than 300 tribes, and 75% of them were willing to get the shot. Their primary motivation was protecting their communities. Which is, at its core, a public health decision. Seeing themselves as individuals who have responsibility to the larger community. Echo Hawk says this helps explain the success of Indian Country's vaccine rollout. Plus, she says IHS facilities are often the only healthcare option on rural reservations. So those hospitals and clinics are deeply ingrained in the communities they serve. We have these operating public health systems where we know who our community is. We know the barriers they have to accessing services such as transportation. We know how to reach our people. We just need more resources to be able to protect our entire communities. The United States has a legal responsibility to provide health care to Indigenous people. It's part of what was offered in exchange for the millions of acres of indigenous land that now make up the United States. But the IHS is severely and chronically underfunded. In 2021, the agency's budget was $6.2 billion, a fraction of the $48 billion that tribal leaders say it would actually take to meet their community's health care needs. What if they had all the resources they needed? We could possibly be at herd immunity in our tribal communities. And we're already close to getting there without it. Take the Blackfeet Nation in Montana, where 95 percent of adults have received at least one vaccine dose. So we have a lot of happy people right now. Spokesman James McNeely says the rollout has been so successful that the tribe has expanded eligibility to non-natives. We have people driving as far away from Kalispell, Whitefish, Bozeman, Cutbank, all over coming to get the vaccine and we're not turning anyone away. From the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming to the Pueblos of New Mexico. More than a dozen of our region's tribal nations are also offering vaccines to the broader community. And as our nation moves into a post-vaccine world, tribal leaders may well take the lead again. McNeely says Blackfeet Nation's reopening will be slow and cautious. We're going to take every and all precautions, no matter what herd immunity or not. And that likely includes a mask mandate there for the next two years. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Savannah Marr. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You'll find this and other stories at KUNC.org. In August of 2019, Aurora police stopped 23-year-old Elijah McLean as he was walking home from a convenience store. Officers wrestled him to the ground and subdued him with a chokehold. A paramedic was summoned, who soon after administered 500 milligrams of ketamine to sedate him. McLean suffered cardiac arrest in the ambulance and died several days later. Now, Representatives Leslie Harrod and Yadira Caraveo have introduced a bill that seeks to ban the practice of sedating people in situations like these. Joining us to discuss the details of this bill and to give us some background is KUNC investigative reporter Michael DeYoanna. 
Michael, let's start with the background. Yes, uh, it is important to touch on the backstory to all of this because it was surprising to us that Elijah McLean was sedated in the first place. And as my investigations with my colleague Ray Solomon and our collaboration with Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting showed last year, it's a lot more common than anyone realized. It starts with that horrible night in August of 2019 when Aurora police stopped McLean because someone called 911 and said that he looked sketchy. Right. He was on his way home from a convenience store and wearing a ski mask, apparently dancing. And after the police forced McLean to the ground, they handcuffed him. Then a paramedic with Aurora Fire Rescue injects him with ketamine. We found that paramedics around the state can sedate people if they think the person has something called excited delirium, and that's what was claimed in this case. Well, let me pause you there. Excited delirium. Tell us more about that. It's where a person is so out of control that they're a threat to themselves and others. People can get so worked up that they can actually die. As one ER doctor in Denver told us, people essentially exercise themselves to death. These are episodes that can happen in the community, so it's often police and medics who see it. The idea, then, is to get the person to an emergency room, so that's why medics will sedate people. It calms them and And it ends the episode. What about Elijah McLean? When we looked at the body camera footage in Elijah McLean's case, he appeared to simply want to be heard by police. He said things like, I'm sorry, I can't breathe correctly. He also uh, seemed to be struggling for his life. And an independent investigation for city officials in Aurora that was released in February also highlights those details and basically confirms that. The report concluded that Aurora Fire Rescue medics appeared to accept the notion from police officers that McLean had excited delirium. And they did that without conducting any further diagnostics of their own. The report also concluded that the paramedic overestimated McLean's weight and that he had received a much higher dose than he should have, and that can cause a lot of harm. Doctors we've talked to say ketamine is a powerful anesthetic, and it can be very dangerous if not administered correctly. And ideally, it should be administered by physicians. That takes us back to this bill we've been talking about How would it address this kind of situation? Well, I spoke to Representative Leslie Herod about that. Let me be clear. What happened to Elijah McClain never should have happened. And there were multiple things that happened in his case that should never happen again. The bill would prevent paramedics from using ketamine and similar drugs to, quote, subdue, sedate, or chemically incapacitate people, including those deemed suspicious, like McClain was when police stopped him, as well as those suspected of crimes. Excited delirium will no longer be um, a reasonable rationale to use what we're calling as chemical restraints. Um, And if these types of drugs are used in the field in a non-hospital setting, they must have the ability to accurately get someone's weight and, and check their ongoing vitals, which we saw multiple times did not happen in instances in Colorado where ketamine was used at the direction of law enforcement. Representative Herod there mentioned multiple times. Yes. In our investigations, we found other cases 
two men who, like McLean, were sedated during police confrontations, although they were already in handcuffs. In both cases, as we've reported previously, it did not appear the men had excited delirium. And beyond that, there were other similar cases, right? Yes. After pressing for information from state public health officials, we found that medics sedated people 902 times in two and a half years for excited delirium or extreme agitation. Now, the thing is, excited delirium, as defined, is supposed to be extremely rare. So we asked a retired emergency doctor from Ohio who helped define excited delirium what he thought of about the 902 sedations, and he told us that the numbers were way high, about 15 times the rate he would expect to see. Moreover, there were a lot of complications, about 17% of the time for those cases before people even arrived at the hospital. What does the medical field say about excited delirium? There's not a lot of literature on it. It's mostly defined in a white paper about a decade ago by the American College of Emergency Physicians. Many doctors don't recognize it as a valid medical condition. For instance, it's not a psychiatric diagnosis. And anesthesiologists have raised concerns about the safety of the treatment. Would this bill allow sedations under any circumstances? Only in a life or death emergency, according to the bill, and only, as Representative Harrod said earlier, if paramedics can weigh someone and monitor their vital signs. The bill also has an accountability piece that would require officers and paramedics to intervene if they're witnessing a wrongful sedation and report it to higher-ups. And what's next? Well, the usual bill process. It will get assigned to a committee for a hearing and its sponsors will seek more support. I know you'll keep us updated as the bill winds its way through the legislature. KUNC's Michael DeYoana, thanks. You're welcome. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.